I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. That famous quote by Gandhi has been used over many years and shared among many people to describe the obvious discontinuity between a savior that Christians claim to believe in and the realities of their own life. There are at least two things that kill churches. On the one hand, it may be false doctrine, that is heresy. Heresy kills churches. And yet on the other hand, it may be true doctrine confessed by false hearts. Not just heresy, but hypocrisy. As we return to the book of Isaiah this morning, Isaiah chapter 29, our topic is the topic of hypocrisy. Many of us have known, perhaps, friends, family members who will not now step foot into the door of a church because of hypocrisy. Because of leaders who said one thing and yet lived another way. Of Christians who looked one way on Sundays and on Monday through Saturday lived an entirely different way. Those who had, as Paul says, the appearance of godliness, but functionally, day in and day out, deny its power. There is an inconsistency, an incongruity between what comes off of their lips and the reality of their lives. Now, this is to say nothing of the hypocrisy in the lives of those who criticize the church or perhaps of their own pride. But I don't think that we can so easily dismiss the charge that they bring against God's people when they bring the charge of hypocrisy. In fact, I want to suggest to you this morning that God himself takes that charge even more seriously than our skeptical friends do. And if you're here this morning and you've managed to come with a friend or you live here in the, in the apartments around and perhaps coming to a church gathering like this was a really difficult decision because of ways that you've been wounded in the past, because of perhaps the ways that you've seen hypocrisy in God's people, well, I want to suggest to you this morning as... I will to the rest of us that God is not only concerned with the very hypocrisy that you have seen and experienced, but God has provided the very solution to our hypocrisy in Christ. That's going to be the big idea of the passage we're looking at this morning. Isaiah 29. That God transforms hypocrites... Through the power of Christ. God transforms hypocrites through the power of Christ. For those of you who have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Isaiah chapter 29. We're going to be looking at the first 14 verses. If you're visiting with us and you're not used to handling a Bible, you can just 
Take a Bible around you, perhaps, one that might be loaned to you, and you can open up right 50% down the middle of those pages, and you'll probably land in Isaiah. We'll be in chapter 29. Or you can go onto your phone and have it do all the work for you, Isaiah 29. Keeping in mind this idea that God transforms hypocrites through the power of Christ, listen to the reading of God's word, Isaiah 29. Ah, or woe, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. Add year to year, let the feasts run their round. Yet I will distress Ariel, and there will be moaning and lamentation, and she shall be to me like Ariel. And I will encamp against you all around and will besiege you with towers and I will rage, raise siege works against you and you will be brought low from the earth you shall speak and from the dust your speech will be bowed down. Your voice shall come from the ground like the voice of a ghost. From the dust your speech shall whisper. But the multitude of your foreign foes shall be like small dust. And the multitude of the ruthless like passing shaft. In an instant, suddenly, you will be visited by the Lord of hosts with thunder and an earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a devouring fire. And the multitude of all the nations that fight against Ariel, all that fight against her and her stronghold and distress her shall be like a dream, a vision of the night. As when a hungry man dreams and behold, he is eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams and behold, he's drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the multitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk, but not with wine. Stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep. And has closed your eyes, that is the prophets, and covered your heads, that is the seers. And the vision of all of this has come to you like the words of a book that is sealed. That when men give it to one who can read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot, for it's sealed. And, and when they give the book to the one who cannot read, saying, read this, he says, I cannot read. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. This is the word of the Lord. May he sanctify us by it, since his word is truth. If you look all the way back at verse 1, you see that word in the ESV, that's a translation that many of us have, says, ah, it's better translated, woe. Isaiah is speaking a woe over Jerusalem. Isaiah, the one who wrote this book, really it's a compilation of many sermons that he preached, he was called by God to be a prophet. He was given a hard message to preach to a hard-hearted people. 
And we've seen a lot of that hard message. It seems a lot of doom and a lot of gloom, and that's the way it's going to be till we get to about Isaiah chapter 40. And there we're going to see the tone of Isaiah's message change. It's going to it's going to change from woe to my people, as we see here, to comfort my people. But in the meantime, Isaiah has been given a hard message to deliver to a hard-hearted people. And we see specifically, he says, Ah, Ariel, Ariel, the city where David encamped. He is speaking woe against precious Jerusalem, against the city where David encamped. And as we learned in our earlier studies in Isaiah, Jerusalem had grown arrogant. They didn't trust the Lord. And so what they did is they, they made a covenant with the dreaded Assyrians. And when the northern kingdom allied with Syria and, and threatened to come against the southern kingdom in Jerusalem to come down and to, to conquer them and to take their king, King Ahaz, out of the throne and replace him with a puppet king, they didn't end up trusting in the Lord and his promises. They turned instead to the biggest boy on the block. They turned to Assyria. And they made a covenant. Listen, we will give fealty to you if you protect us. Well, they trusted in Assyria to rescue them from danger, but not in God. And that's why in the previous chapter, as we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 28, Isaiah told them that their covenant with Assyria was a covenant of death. Because Assyria has their fingers crossed behind their backs. They're going to double cross you. And that will be God's judgment on you. Well, Jerusalem is proud. And in their pride, they have become spiritually complacent. They kept up all of their religious activity. But that activity was rote and it was heartless. They were going through all of the motions and they were keeping up the pious appearances. While at the same time refusing to trust in the God that they professed to worship. They were hypocrites. That's why Isaiah twice calls them Ariel. Here and elsewhere in the Bible, the Hebrew word translated Ariel means altar hearth. It's the place where sacrifices are offered. And so Isaiah calls them Ariel to point out the hypocrisy of their worship. And so when he says Ariel, Ariel, he's ironically saying city of worship. Oh, you city of worship in order to reveal to them their false worship. It's kind of like when the bully on the playground keeps picking on the smaller kids several grades below them and then somebody bigger than them calls out, Hey, tough guy! The reality is he's not actually tough, though he thinks himself as tough. The calling out of the tough guy is to reveal the irony of his lack of toughness and picking on those who are smaller than him. Well, that's exactly what Isaiah is doing here and calling them Ariel, Ariel, city of sacrifice, city of worship. He says, add year to year, let the feasts run their round there in verse one. He says, hey, Ariel, hey, you city of worship, let your feasts run the round. Keep on going through the motions. Keep up all of your pious appearances. The Lord knows your heart. And judgment is coming. Beloved, I had asked you this morning, are you going through the motions? Are you merely keeping up pious appearances while at the same time refusing to trust in the God that you 
profess to worship? Have you grown proud and complacent, perhaps like Jerusalem? Do you, do you perhaps believe that as long as you keep going through the motions and, and keep up spiritual appearances at church and in small group and Bible studies, oh, then God won't touch you? Do you believe that your religious commitments somehow earn for you some moral leeway with God? Well, friends, listen to me. God does not want your empty worship. In fact, God hates hypocritical worship. Do you remember what what we learned in Isaiah 1? This is what God says to Israel. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. We love to think about God as being a God of love, but here in Isaiah we see that God actually hates something. What does he hate? He hates hypocritical worship. He hates those who say one thing and live another way. Those who offer worship and sacrifice and yet at the same time live lives marked by injustice and lack of love for neighbor. He says, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. He says that they have become a burden to me. I'm, I'm weary, he says, of bearing them. He says, when you spread out your hands in worship, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. And even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. We see the same thing in the New Testament. You may remember the example that, that Peter writes to husbands. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel, granting her honor as a fellow heir in the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. To show up to church and to sing and to speak one way and then to go home and treat your spouse another way is hypocrisy. And God will not hear that when you come to pray. You'll have prayerless prayers. Brothers and sisters, we should be concerned with the outward forms of our worship because God is concerned with the forms of our worship. He's prescribed certain ways in which we're to come to him, but that isn't the only thing that he's concerned with. The way that God evaluates our worship goes much deeper than the outward forms that we prize so deeply. He doesn't just want the right forms. He wants right hearts. We can do everything according to the book, but if our hearts aren't reformed by his grace... God will hide his eyes and he will close his ears. Let your feasts run round year after year. Keep on going through the motions, Isaiah says. Judgment is coming. And that's what we see in verse 2. It says, I will distress Ariel. There will be moaning and lamentation and, and she shall be to me like Ariel. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and again in Hebrews chapter 12 that our God is a consuming fire and that this consuming fire will either work for his people's protection or it'll work for their destruction. You remember what happened to the altar of the priests of Baal? God destroyed their false worship by consuming their altar hearth, their Ariel with fire from heaven. Well, God has seen the false worship of Jerusalem, of Ariel, and he says that they will be to him like an Ariel. 
an altar hearth. He says, I'm going to consume you. Only Jerusalem will be consumed not by fire from heaven, but by, as we'll see, foreign foes who will come against them because they've broken covenant with the Lord. And Isaiah wants Jerusalem to know that when those foreign foes encamp against you, that when they come and besiege you, that when they come and they raise siege works against you, it's really me that's doing it. Look at verse 3. I will encamp against you all around. I will besiege you. I will raise siege works against you and you will be brought low verse 4 from the earth you shall speak and from the dust your speech will bow down and your voice shall come from the ground like a voice of a ghost and from the dust your speech shall whisper in the same way that David encamped around Jabus when it was occupied by the Philistines and conquered it and subdued it such that it would become Jerusalem so now God is going to do the exact same thing He is going to besiege corrupt, hypocritical Jerusalem. And he's going to conquer for himself a new Jerusalem, the one that he truly desires. Friends, this is God's strange work. It's what we learn in Isaiah 28, his strange work. That is judgment that brings about salvation, or rather salvation through judgment. That he will bring them in verse 4 so low to the dust that they won't even be able to cry out. But according to God's strange work, is this not the time when God becomes more meaningful to us than ever before? And he strips away all of our false appearances and exposes us so that everybody sees us, perhaps for the first time, according to who we really are. Our public life now matches our private life. And man, that can be scary and that can be really humiliating. And all we want to do in those moments when the threat of exposure comes our way is to crawl back into that illusion that we've spent so many years carefully crafting that place where we felt safe. But God loves you and he loves his church too much to let us settle for safety in an illusion. And because he loves you, he will bring you low until you stop fighting against his will and his word. And until you are left with no other option but to yield to his victory over your life. Oh, beloved, if you're one here today and you know in the secret heart of hearts and those who know you most closely behind closed doors that there is an incongruity between your public life here and your private life at home. then stop pretending. Stop fighting against God. Let God win and trust that even in the wounding, even in the death, and it sometimes feels like a thousand little deaths when we suffer the death of our reputation, perhaps the last idol in most of our lives that needs to fall, how we're perceived by others. Oh, it can feel like a thousand little deaths that we're dying publicly for all to see. But it's through that wounding that our Savior finally brings healing. That we wouldn't live 
in that way anymore. And so brothers, stop fighting. Sisters, let God win. And I promise that in your defeat, God will lift from your heart that old lust to control everything, including your outward appearances before others. And you will finally be free. Hypocrisy is slavery. And sometimes the only way for us to be freed from the chains of hypocrisy is through the pain of God breaking those chains for all to see. Wouldn't you rather enjoy freedom in God and integrity between public and private life, even if it costs you whatever reputation you've carefully constructed all these years? Brothers and sisters, it is better to gain God through pain and repentance according to his grace than it is to resist him and to keep up appearances at all cost and to lose him or to perhaps find out that you never had him. And God's purposes for the bitter circumstances in your life in exposing you and tearing these idols down have been fulfilled for your good and your glory and it may take a while. It may be a painful season of bitter providence to bring you to that point. But when its purposes are fulfilled in your life, oh, trust that the Lord will cause those things to pass. They may feel omnipotent in the moment. They feel all-powerful and all-consuming. But they're not. They are wielded by an all-powerful God for your good. And he will bring them to an end when their purposes in your life have been fulfilled. And that's what we see in verses 5 through 8. What we see here is the bitter providence that God uses to ultimately humble Jerusalem isn't going to last. The bitter circumstances that God brings about on this city to expose their hypocrisy isn't going to last. The same consuming fire that falls on Ariel on the altar hearth will fall and consume all of Israel's enemies. And though it appears to Jerusalem in the moment that this bitter providence is all powerful over their life, oh, in, in reality, they only serve God's purposes for them. And when their purposes have been fulfilled, then God's people are going to be visited by the Lord. And all of our enemies are devoured. Look at in verse 5. In an instant... Suddenly, those things which seem all-powerful in our lives, consuming and overcoming us, are vanquished like chaff in the hand of Almighty God. That's how big He is. To use it and then to remove it for our good and for His glory. So Israel's enemies came against her hungry, but in verse 8, they're going to leave hungry. They came against her thirsting, but they're going to end up leaving thirsty. All that to say that they will only succeed insofar as they fulfill God's purposes for his people, but they will not ultimately prevail. And neither will the bitter providences that God has allowed in your life to bring about change and transformation. To wean you off of this world and off of yourself and your self-sufficiency. And to wean you back to God and His grace and His mercy in Christ. 
He uses those bitter circumstances and those bitter providences, those broken relationships. Sometimes he uses broken bodies and broken minds and all kinds of broken things in our lives to bring us to the end of ourselves. And it's at the end of ourselves that we find a God who is kind and merciful. We find a physician who, though willing to use a scalpel on us and wound us, is a good physician who ultimately aims to heal us. This is what is promised to Israel in these verses. Their enemies will not win. And they will only succeed insofar as it serves God's purposes for his people. Well, what is true for us as individuals is also true for God's people as a whole. How many times have God's enemies licked their chops prematurely over the demise of the church? You remember those more than 40 men in Acts chapter 23 who conspired to assassinate the Apostle Paul. I often wonder if Luke had a smirk on his face as he wrote that account knowing that Paul was still alive and well preaching the gospel. The gates of hell would not prevail against the church. God may use them, even persecution, to spread his church and to grow his church and to purify his church, but the world will not destroy his church. Isn't this ultimately what Voltaire found at the end of the Enlightenment? He claimed that the early 19th century that the Bible would pass into the limbo of forgotten literature. Those are his words. Shortly after Voltaire died, his home was used as a publishing house for Bibles. Oh, the irony of the arrogance of God's enemies against his people. But what about the many ways in our own day when our current cancel culture would labor to cancel Christianity? It can seem as if the cultural tides are going to overwhelm the church once and for all. Oh, but brothers and sisters, in these and many, many more instances, God's enemies, though they seem so formidable, so indefatigable, inexhaustible to us, they prove to be anything but all-powerful. And then when they have served all of their purposes to purify God's people, like chaff, instantly, God's enemies will be defeated. His church will remain. This is what I think we find in many of our challenges in our own day. You say, well, what is God doing? It seems that many people are leaving the church, especially millennials are are leaving the church. It seems that we're selling ourselves out for political power. It seems that we're selling ourselves out, not for the gospel of Jesus Christ, but for only those things that we can see in social transformation at the expense of the gospel. And yet in all of these things, God is using these cultural currents and all of this opposition that would seek to undermine us and disqualify us, to expose, at the end of the day, our own hypocrisy, to purify us, to show to the world those who really belong to him, and to use these things as a means to cause his true people to persevere. Friends, those who do not belong to God will not persevere persecution. Perhaps they make it to the end through the skin of their teeth. But when lines are drawn and they choose the world over God, their loyalty will be exposed and their hypocrisy is found out. That is God's grace to his church. To use God's enemies to fulfill all of his purposes, 
to purify his people so that they might in fact be to his glory in the world. But I want to encourage you, though they seem insurmountable, all of these forces and all of these enemies, they cannot go one millimeter beyond what is necessary to accomplish God's purposes in our lives. The moment their purposes are fulfilled, they will be devoured, poof, in a minute. But for now, here in Isaiah 29, Israel does not have ears to hear Isaiah's message. Because they are willfully blind, God will blind them. And because they are willfully ignorant, God will make them ignorant. He will end up making the wisdom of even their wisest men to become nothing but utter foolishness. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, Astonish yourselves and be astonished. Blind yourselves and be blind. Be drunk with not with wine. Stagger but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured out upon you a spirit of deep sleep and has closed your eyes and has covered your heads. In verses 9 and 10, we see not only that Judah has blinded herself to the work of God, but that it's God himself that has blinded her. You see, the biblical authors have no problem harmonizing God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. It's just a matter of fact. So which is it? Did Judah astonish themselves or were they astonished? Did they blind themselves or were they blinded? Answer, all the above. And this is part of God's incomprehensibility of how his sovereignty even works in our human freedom as we freely choose to do the very things that our heart desires above all things, including to choose sin over God. That God is able in his sovereignty to use even those things to his perfect ends and purposes. So in verses 9 and 10, the willfully blind have been made blind by God. But also in verses 11 to 12, notice the willfully ignorant are made ignorant. In a sense, the word of God has come to them in the form of a closed Bible. It gets passed around, but if you notice by scanning these couple of verses, everyone is illiterate. Nobody can tell anyone else what it says. The truth of the gospel is sealed off from them. What Isaiah is describing here is the same spiritual reality that we see in Amos chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, but not a famine of bread, nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they'll wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Brothers and sisters, this is a frightening proposition for hypocrites. If the word of God is to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, then what happens when God snuffs out the lamp and turns off the lights? The answer is you're drunk, but not with wine. You stagger but not with strong drink, you become unreasonable, you become unstable, you become wandering and lost in the dark. And this is God's judgment against those who will not turn. And yet, it is through his very judgment that he'll bring salvation to his people. Look at verse 13. 
Why is it that God is going to bring this blindness and ignorance into their lives as a consequence of their hypocrisy? He says this, as the Lord said, because these people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips. While their hearts are far from me and the fear of me is a commandment taught only by men. When Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for hypocrisy in Matthew 15, and again in Mark 7, he quotes this verse, Isaiah 29, 11. They were drawing near to God only in words. Their praise was mere lip service. Their hearts were removed far from him. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be deceived. There's not a single one of us here who is above this or exempt from it. I wonder how many of us develop a kind of facility with Christian speak such that we say, thank God and, and praise the Lord. Yet our hearts are completely unengaged from those very words. They become, in the words of the Puritan Thomas Watson, prayerless prayers, and they become praiseless praise. They become a husk with, with no kernel in it. There's no heart. It just becomes rote language. We honor with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. I think this is especially dangerous for a church like ours. We need to be especially careful of hypocrisy because of the value that we place as a church on sound doctrine. And that's rightly so. We've been commanded in the word. As pastors to teach that which accords with sound doctrine, to correct that which contradicts it. We're called to, in Titus 2, to live according to sound doctrine. In every sphere of life, in every relationship, sound doctrine is foundational to the health and life of the church. But there are still two extremes that you and I need to avoid. On the one extreme, we need to avoid the lie that we can truly know God without knowing sound doctrine. But I don't think that's really the problem for many of us in this church. On the other extreme, and I think more relevant for us, we need to avoid the lie that knowing sound doctrine means you truly know God. You can read all the right books, you can confess all the right confessions. You can say all of the right things and still have a heart that is far from God. But God doesn't want full heads and empty hearts. He wants full hearts that are informed by full heads. Heads that are full of His revelation and that respond to that revelation for His glory. To glorify Him and enjoy Him. That's why Spurgeon quipped, give me a warm-hearted Methodist over a full-headed Calvinist any day. In other words, what he's saying is it doesn't matter how sound your theology is if your heart is cold to God. I'd rather take one who I have theological disagreement with but loves God than those with whom I might find perfect agreement doctrinally and our agreement is only in words and not in affection. Doctrine and devotion must go together. That's why the late A.W. Tozer warned, you can be straight as a gun barrel theologically and as empty as one spiritually. And we've got to guard against that. One of my greatest fears for myself and for this church, and I admit that I do not fear it enough, is Paul's words in 2 Timothy 3 that we would, quote, have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. Always learning 
never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. May that not be true of us. And so even now, if you're one who is thinking of attending the information meeting immediately following our service about the MPC Institute, that we might be able to learn more about the doctrine of God and be able to build this and strengthen this foundation in your own lives and in our church. We need to carry this warning with us. That we don't want to be those who have merely the appearance of godliness yet denying its power. We don't want to be those who are always learning, always reading, always studying, always talking, and yet never acquiring the knowledge of the truth that is our chief purpose to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever and to help others do the same. So how is it then that God's people keep themselves free from this kind of hypocrisy of being doctrinaire in our words and cold in our hearts from appearing godly or godly but denying the very power of God. Well, according to verse 14, our final verse this morning, it's not so much what we do, not first at least, it's what God must do. Therefore, behold, oh, I love that connecting word. Behold, stop, open your eyes, you who are blind, because I'm about to do something. I will again do wonderful things with this people and wonder upon wonder and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. You get to the end of verse 13 with hearts far from them and you're thinking, oh man, God's about to drop the hammer. But God says, you know what I'm going to do in verse 14? Grace. Mercy. He says, I will again do wonderful things. And that is our messianic clue. Because we've seen this word, this Hebrew word translated wonderful, in verse 14, before in Isaiah. You remember where? In chapter 9. Speaking of the Messiah, Isaiah prophesies, and you shall call his name wonderful. Behold, This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to confound the wise. How am I going to do it? Not through a conquering hero, but through a little baby in the incarnation. And it's going to be through the weakness of the incarnate son that I am going to humiliate the wisdom of the wise. It's going to be through the death of the very son of God that I am going to show the discerning men to have had no discernment at all. I'm going to do wonderful things. That rather than send fire and brimstone, God promises through Isaiah that he is going to send the incarnate son. And as we saw in chapter 28, he will be, the son will be to some a precious cornerstone, but to others a stumbling block. Well, Paul is going to pick up this idea in chapter, or in verse 14, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Go there with me and we'll finish up. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Keeping in mind, verse 14, that I'm going to do wonderful things and I'm going to cause the, per- I'm going to cause the wisdom of the wise to perish and the discernment of the discerning to be hidden. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You hit Acts and Romans, then you'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at what Paul writes. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, tell me if this sounds familiar, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. It's Isaiah 29, 14. Paul is saying this is exactly how God has fulfilled this promise. I said at the very beginning that God transforms hypocrites through the power of Christ. You look at Isaiah 29, you go, but I don't see Jesus in Isaiah 29. Paul did. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved is the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise, and where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There's only three things in all of the Bible that are described as the power of God. Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And then two other things here in 1 Corinthians. The cross in verse 18 is the power of God. And in verse 24, Christ is the power of God. All of those things are ultimately just one thing. It's the power of God. The power of God is the good news of Christ crucified. You say, well, how in the world will I ever begin to navigate this incongruity in my life? I see it. I don't want it. I don't want to be humiliated. I don't want to lose what I've gained. This illusion has profited me much in this world. It's profited me a reputation, but my soul is sick. Look to Christ. The world will call him foolishness. The world will call giving up all of that for the sake of Christ as utter folly, but Christ is a stumbling block to the world. That if you lose everything and gain Christ, then you've gained everything. (laughs) That's the gospel. The folly of the world is, if you gain the whole world and lose Christ, then you gain everything, and the reality is is that you lose everything. Brothers and sisters, the cure for hypocrisy in our lives is not a white-knuckled getting ourselves fixed. There's not a program for it. There's not a dig in and work harder mess to it. Not at first, at least. But the only solution to those who deny the power of godliness, though they have its appearance, is the power of Christ. It's the one who can take us and knows us and seeks us and searches us down to the very levels that nobody else, including our closest relationships, even know about us. 
And the power of God in Christ is able to take you and transform you. Though he may use bitter providence to bring you to this point, it all serves his good purposes in your life to bring you away from yourself and off of this world and to bring you back to Christ. Friend, listen to me. The good news of the gospel is not a church without hypocrites. The good news of the gospel is a son of God who willingly came to die for hypocrites like you and like me. So in all of our conversations with our friends and family members who are put off by the hypocrisy of the church, perhaps even our own hypocrisy, I wonder if perhaps our first and only viable response then is in humility to be brought to the dust and say, yes, you're right. I have been a hypocrite. You have seen an incongruity in my life. You have seen my lips say one thing on Sunday and my life profess another thing throughout the week. You're right, I am a hypocrite. And the church is full of them. Oh, but we got a Savior that loves to save hypocrites. That loves to transform hypocrites. <laughs> that loves to take our private lives and transform it and turn it upside down in such a way that it begins to match with our public lives. And in so doing, to give himself all of the glory for that transformation by freeing us from that bondage of keeping up appearances, from freeing us from the slavery of constantly having to work in our minds over and over and over again, how it is that other people are perceiving us. Oh, the gospel is able to free us from all of that. Are you willing to lose your reputation and gain Christ? The power of Christ can do that. Or are you willing to hold on to your reputation? And perhaps find that you were never in Christ at all. Friends, perhaps God is pressing on you in this season of life to expose you, to save you, and to change you. That's what we see in Isaiah 29. God is so good to not leave us in our hypocrisy. Let's pray.